Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... James Hunt and Ian Grundy. So, Seb is not joining us this week. Uh, he has a very busy schedule um, and also knows probably even less than me about uh, manga and anime and Ghost in the Shell. But we are joined by Ian this week. Ian, do you want to let the listeners know a little bit about yourself? Yep, uh, I'm an anime expert, a very hotly in demand sort of expert. Um, <laughs> well, to be honest, I watched anime a lot a few years ago, but haven't watched a whole lot lately. So a lot of my knowledge might be a bit out of date. But I do know about Ghost in the Shell, fortunately. I know yeah. too much Ian, about Ghost in the Shell, maybe. Ian's like my anime guru. Like He, he took me from watching Ghost in the Shell to watching sort of more anime generally okay uh we'll be discussing the latest comic book movie and tv news this week before launching into our spoiler filled discussion of marimo oshi's 1995 film ghost in the shell but before any of that i'm going to ask seven uh, uh, i'm going to ask <laughs> before any of that i'm going to ask james and ian to explain a comic book or maybe anime slash manga concept that as a movie fan i just don't understand I'm going to keep it fairly broad this week, guys. Can you explain manga to me? Like, what is what defines <laughs> manga? What what makes it different? Is it just Japanese comic books, or does it? Is there any like defining characteristics that make that define manga? Manga is literally Japanese for comics. So, in the same way, what the French, what we call comics, the French would call bande dessinée. We call uh, Japanese people call comics manga. It doesn't help that there is an anime company called Manga. That confused me, teenage me, for a long time. It confused everyone. Like, yeah, you'd often say, "Hey, <laughs> did you watch the latest manga?" And you'd be like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like the the only characteristic of manga that distinguishes it from comics is that because it's Japanese, you read it right to left. Okay, and and so in terms of the animation style, is it is it just that that's that manga tends to have the Eastern animation style rather than a Western one? Is that why? I mean, would it be fair to say if I was looking at a page and there weren't any letters on it to give it away, I'd probably know what was an American comic and what was a Japanese one? Yeah, I mean, probably. I think another big difference is that it's often not coloured in manga. Um, it's right. just uh, black and white and, you know, shading and such. So Yeah, uh, I mean, the the tradition of, of manga is quite different to the tradition of comics in that manga is kind of presented in sort of giant disposable phone books basically hmm. uh, and read in weekly chapters of about 12 pages maybe whereas with western comics you get sort of 20 pages full colour little pamphlet every every month um, and so when it comes to the movie adaptations like so Ghost in the Shell is an anime adaptation and again so like anime I think probably has a distinctive style the, the Japanese animation 
you you can usually spot pretty distinctively from western animation do do mangas tend to be directly adapted into anime or is there is in japan is there a you know is the tradition of live action adaptations as well um, I'd say there's both. Like animation, like, uh, sorry, manga get adapted all over the place. Like, you're literally, there are, there are TV shows, there are live action movies, animated movies. There are these things called light novels, which are like sort of short fiction uh, prose that, that spin out like. Young if, adult. Well, yeah, quite. If people want to license their manga, there is no shortage of outlets for, for ways to translate it into other mediums. The other thing to remember is. Um, Manga is vastly, vastly more popular in Japan than anime. Um, manga, if you like, go on your average um, Japanese train or something or bus, uh, half the people there will be reading some sort of uh, manga, like either from the phone book size things that are being <laughs> James is describing, or just the little the little books. But yeah, everyone really reads manga, and um, the reason why that is is <laughs> At least this is how I understand it, is that uh, reading proper books in Japan is way more difficult than uh, <laughs> it is for uh, Western, with our nice 26-character alphabet. Um, so the more looking at pictures of uh, scenes and stuff they can do, the better. Um, right. And they don't have to know 8,000 extra symbols for like the old novels and... and <laughs> Stuff like that's that. In, so. I'd never actually thought of it that way, but that's interesting, yeah. And so in regards to Ghost in the Shell specifically, would you probably find that, you know, in Japan, as many if not more people would know the source material as as they would the film? Or or has the has the film transcended in the, in the same way it has over here? Uh, it's hard to say, because the, like, the film was a huge hit. So I imagine most people would have come in through the film... Yeah, I'd say that as well. Um, yeah, because the the manga we'll get to talking about it properly later. But I think the manga was quite a niche piece of science fiction. Like the the thing to remember is that sort of popular manga tends to be it's like things like sporting manga, <laughs> Prince of Tennis, Prince of Tennis. Yeah, like that's that's the kind of popular thing. And you know, like in the West, science fiction is a kind of tiny segment of the overall market. I, I feel like on a normal week to week basis, I'm slightly confused by comic books and culture but I, I may be in completely over my head this week um, someone <laughs> I mean I'm going to have to take you both by the hand and you're going to have to guide me very gently through all of this okay so it's this guy and he's really good at tennis <laughs> Um, okay, um, well, let's move on now to our comic book movie and TV news section. And this is this is going to be a little bit more straightforward, uh, a little bit less anime, because there's not much anime or manga in the news. And um, a little peek behind the curtain. We're actually recording this a week before you're listening to it, because I'm going to New York this weekend, which is very exciting. Uh, but it means we've had to record early. And so all of this news is a week out of date. So just pretend it's not... And if some really exciting comic book news has broken in the past week, we're sorry, we're just we're just not around to talk about it. So let's hope, let's hope Stanley hangs on for another week. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's going to happen? It's going to be like Sunday night. We're going to get we're going to get the first trailer of Captain America: Civil War. Monday morning, Stanley's going to pop his clogs, and Tuesday night, I don't know, Zack Snyder's going to accidentally tweet the first twenty minutes of. Batman versus Superman. <laughs> ben Affleck um, crashes the Batmobile into the White House. <laughs> but for now, hey, there's a Blue Beetle and Booster Gold movie in the works at Warner Brothers. What? 
<laughs> Ian, is it fair to say that you're not you're not going to be much help on these a, more traditional yeah. comics things? Those don't sound like anime or manga to me, so I'll let James take this one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so, James, this probably would be more Seb-specific with it being DC, but should we be excited about a buddy cop movie with Blue, Be- Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, um, potentially coming from Greg Bellanti, um, the, the guy behind Flash, Arrow, and Supergirl? You're right, this is technically Seb's sort of area because he's the DC Universe guy, but at the same time, I think there's... a very strong potential for this to be an interesting series. Booster Gold and Blue Beetle are kind of... They ha- they have that sort of buddy cop pairing naturally in the comics. Uh, one of them's a time traveller and one of them gets his powers from a mystic scarab, I think. Seb's going to be shouting at the podcaster. Yeah, so there's there's that kind of tension between science and mysticism that they can cover. I, I can imagine it making a sort of fun comedy series... Uh, I gather I haven't seen Flash, but I gather that's quite comic booky and light. Yeah, but this is actually going to be a movie, James. Oh, sorry. Yeah, um. <laughs> this is actually a DC Warner Brothers movie. So even though it's from Greg Belanti, it's going to be on the big screen. Which okay, well, seems in insane that... given everything else that DC are prepping, but um, well, <laughs> refreshing, I think. I was going to say, like, my one concern would be that the powers of the characters don't necessarily lend themselves to TV adaptation. But if it's a movie. Uh, or the better for it. Okay. Um, we'll move on now to uh, Jessica Jones on Netflix. Um, we have got our first uh, official look, and um, who knows, by the time you're listening to this, there could be a trailer, a full trailer as well, which would be very exciting. But, James, um, you love Alias. I think all of us on this podcast love Alias and are very excited about a Jessica Jones TV show. What did you think of these first pictures? Um, Because I know you have something very specific to say about the Purple Man. (laughs) Okay, so without being sort of angry nerd guy, I was disappointed that the Purple Man wasn't purple. (laughs) Why is that important, James? Okay, because for me, obviously, a guy being purple and dressing in purple is a completely ludicrous visual. But at the same time, his power is to kind of exert his influence over people in a sort of... Uh, unbreakable and uh, irresistible way and part of what makes the character work is that he is literally this purple guy but no one calls him out on it and no one draws attention to it because he is that powerful that he can just stroll around and you know live his life as normal Mm. subtly undermining everyone's perception of him that being purple is fine so I mean I gather there are ways that they might work this into the series. Like, he might be intentionally covering up his purpleness and they're representing that visually. It would it could make a lot of sense that he is purple, he's walking around purple, but we're seeing him as not because that is that he's he's pulling that trick. So we're kind of seeing through the eyes of Jessica and the other characters and maybe yeah. there's some reveal that he's been purple the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Like, I wouldn't be at all surprised if final episode, like, Jessica beats the crap out of him and he in losing his powers or being so weak to use them appears purple all of a sudden. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I'm not I'm not criticising it for something that I don't know hasn't happened yet. But you just feel it should be stated that it's important <laughs> for the record, that the purple yeah. man is purple. He's wearing yes. a purple scarf, James. Is that not well, enough for you? <laughs> well, clearly. <laughs> clearly not. What do you think about the use of Hellcat in the Captain Marvel role? Because obviously in the comics... Uh, Jessica is friends with Carol Danvers and Carol Danvers is an important part of the movie universe at the moment so can't be used on the screen so they're using Hellcat in that same position 
it's the kind of translation I can understand. Like, I don't think... The thing about Jessica Jones is because she was a co- uh, continuity insert in the first place, it doesn't really matter that they're changing this because it's not like she had a rich history with Carol Danvers that they exploited. It was that they invented one for the purposes of the series. Mm. So to move it to someone like Hellcat, who is a bit lower tier, a bit less likely to have been hanging out with the Avengers, you know, that for me, that worked. I, I think it would. It, it makes sense that that maybe if Chris and Rissa's Jessica Jones did have a superhero past, that it wasn't necessarily with the top tier Marvel heroes. Yeah, exactly. In, in this adaptation. And also, I think it's going to be very interesting... You know, now that we're opening up the Marvel Universe to the idea of, you know, a Spider-Man pre-existing, but he just hasn't had any mo- uh, showed up in any movies yet, I think it'll be quite fun to go down onto the street level and see a character like maybe someone like Hellcat, who is a superhero on the streets, but we just haven't, we haven't interacted with her yet. She's just going around her business and hasn't really got herself onto the radar of someone like the Avengers. Yeah, you could you can have this like second wave of characters who are inspired by the Battle of New York to become superheroes, but haven't mm. maybe become the breakout adventures they want to be. And it gives the Marvel universe free range in the future to introduce characters without having to do origin, which is going to be helpful for Luke Cage in the series as well when he gets his own series straight yes. after this. It's going to ruin Agents of Shield's entire concept. <laughs> um, Ian, are you are you looking forward to Jessica Jones? Is that is that the kind of thing that you might watch? Did you watch yeah, Daredevil? Yeah. I did watch Daredevil. I thought it was really good. Um, I actually think I liked it a bit more than some of the other Marvel films that were coming around uh, that year. But um, yeah, I'll definitely watch anything they put out. Uh. Okay, well that's it for this week's comic book and TV news. We'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Ghost in the Shell. But before we dive in, let's listen to the trailer for the movie. What's a simulated experience again? All your memories about your wife and daughter are false. They're like a dream. Someone's taken advantage of you. They were trying to make you ghost hack into some government officials. Do you understand what I'm saying? But that can't be. I had a picture of her. She was there. The truth is, you've never had a wife or kid. Like he said, they aren't real. They're a simulated experience. A fantasy. Are we talking about the Puppet Master? The infamous mystery hacker? We don't know a lot either. No clue about age, sex, or background. All we know for certain is this person is on the international most wanted list for crimes including stock manipulation, illegal information gathering, political engineering, several acts of terrorism. The nickname Puppet Master comes from the ghost hacking. My code name is Project 2501. I am a living, thinking entity who was created in the sea of information. That's all it is. Information, even a simulated experience or a dream, simultaneous reality and fantasy. net is vast and infinite. Ghost in the Shell. Okay, so that was uh, a taste of Ghost in the Shell. So guys, we, we should be quite specific here. We are talking about um, Ghost in the Shell, not Ghost in the Shell 2.0. 
Um, and the version that we have watched, um, which is the one that we are discussing, is the original uh, Japanese audio one um, with English subtitles. Now, do you think... I think it would be good for you to start off by explaining to the audience why we're going with that version and not either of the other two. Okay. I think uh, both me and James probably watched the uh, English dub version of this film. Like, I don't know. I must have watched it like 15 times as a teenager, a kid, or whatever. And I only actually understood what was going on at all when I actually watched the subtitle version <laughs> in university. I was like, oh, that's what that film was about. I had no idea. Yeah, it's like there's there's a script they use for the dub and a script for the subtitles. And if you don't watch the subtitles, there are fairly large plot points that you can entirely miss. Yeah. Um I mean just on a very basic level, I so I bought the DVD which had all three versions on there and um so I watched the subtitle version and then afterwards kind of just had a quick look at the other two. Just on a basic level, it seemed like the performances of the voice actors they were trying to kind of match the their words to the mouth movements of the anime and that led to a very kind of staccato and wooden delivery of all dialogue <laughs> yes i am an anime voice actor yeah it's yeah. it's um them trying to fit the script to the mouth movements is folly and uh, ruins a lot of things um, yeah i mean it's quite a common thing isn't it like yeah uh, it's. I find it utterly bizarre that this is one of the films that managed to sort of cross over. It was like this and Akira managed to make anime a kind of big deal in the West. Hmm. And it it just boggles my mind that it could have done that with such stilted delivery and... An emphasis on the wrong words. There was a couple of key scenes that I was re-watching where just the, 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 the emphasis on a certain word wasn't there, which... You can kind of, kind you can kind of still get across in the Japanese subtitle version, even if you don't know Japanese, because you can kind of, you kind of, you can kind of hear where the sen- sentence has been punctuated mm-hmm. um, when you read along with the the subtitles, and oh, just just basically thinking, oh, that line doesn't have any impact when you emphasize that other word instead. <laughs> There's I also mean, a lot they do with the kind of like um, the. English voice acting is all done at like full volume. It sounds like they're in a recording studio, but the Japanese voice acting often has environmental effects on it. So it'll sound different out in a street scene as it does in a um, mm. in like a closed environment and has like reverb and stuff. So uh, it, you lose all of that as well with the dub. I'm not entirely certain that this is the case, but I get the feeling the the English dub is recorded line by line, whereas in the Japanese tradition of voice acting there tends to be a bit more sort of actual emphasis on acting interplay between characters uh, it's a bit more like you know how they record the simpsons here which yeah. is by getting the cast in a room and letting them read the scenes i think it's more like that whereas the english dub to me sounds like it's been someone been given a list of their lines and told them read these yeah yeah and you you mentioned about kind of like certain plot points being missed because of the script is is there any particular examples you can think of that of something that just doesn't come across in the subtitle version like the plot is so kind of intricate and it's about the sort of political wrangling between two internal government agencies in this kind of futuristic japan that if you don't have the details in the script there are things you won't understand about how why things have happened why they've happened 
Um, mm. th- I mean, we did come up with a. There's a really famous example of how the script for the for the subtitles and the dub differ. No, it's uh, the very beginning where uh, Major Kusanagi is up on the rooftop, uh, listening to the kind of uh, political stuff going on in the room where the men she's about to assassinate is. Bato's listening into her mind, and he he comments that it's very noisy in there, and he doesn't know what's going on. And in the uh, subtitles, she says, um, it's my time of the month. And in the dub, she says, must be a loose connection or something <laughs> dumb like yeah. that. So, like, that's that's the kind of nuance you're losing. And, well, and for, for a film that is so heavily, to me, seemed to be commenting on gender and sexuality in the computer age. Yeah. How that that's a... That's a pretty p- pivotal little nuanced moment there, right there. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's the kind of the the line in the subtitles tells you about the character and the world and how people's bodies relate to their cyborg parts. Mm. And, and she's got a bit of humour to it, sort of like it can't possibly be that. So, well, yeah, quite. <laughs> she's a robot yeah. lady. <laughs> and then in the in the dubbed version, it's like a throwaway you know, plug this gap with a line. Yeah. yeah. Find something that looks like it fits the mouth movements and say it. Mm-hmm. And then Ghost in the Shell 2.0. So this is a film that were, this is a, a new version of the film overseen by the original director in 2008 and yes. kind of has a lot more computer graphics put on top. I mean, to me, it seems like remastered Star Wars, but hmm. you know, the, the, the Japanese equivalent of George Lucas tinkering yeah. in his original <laughs> Yeah, for me, it's it's Red Dwarf that always springs to mind because the the additions are so out of place that they just wreck any kind of quality of experience you can take from watching the film. It's very bizarre. I t- I turned it on for a second and I, like just watched the opening sequence. The opening sequence kind of has remastered um, the lead character Kusanagi into this fully like CG character, and the opening scene. Anything with her outside the building is CG, but then when it cuts into the building, it's the old cell animation, the old cell anime animation inside the building. Mm -hmm. And then it stops being CG, and then as the movie goes on, it's kind of like the computer inserts are still, are like more heavily 3D CG, whereas the rest is still just the original movie. It's very, very odd. It is an absolute butchering. And they also take this very odd decision to... Like, Ghost in the Shell, quite famously, was entirely tinted green to emphasise the kind of... To make it look like a VDU, basically. Which, back in the early 90s... To make it look like The Matrix. It totally ripped (laughs) off The Matrix, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that. But, like, the... um, you know, that was a stylistic choice, whereas in Ghost in the Shell 2, it's entirely tinted orange for no discernible reason. There were uh, amber monochrome monitors as well, so they were clearly <laughs> had a, a fan of that as the art director. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, that what this boils down to is that is why we, we are discussing, specifically in this context, the Japanese audio with English subtitles. Yes. Okay, guys, can you explain the plot of the movie to our dear listeners? No. <laughs> um, slash, slash, also to me. Can you uh, explain have, the plot? I have seen it. I could try. I could try. Can we to try? Yeah. yeah, go on. Okay, so there is um, Major Kusanagi, who is basically mostly made up out of cyborg gen- uh, and like fake parts. There is like some of her brain remaining, but she's basically been mostly 
replaced with this genetic shell and what's left of her like she 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 kind of like debates whether she's got a soul left inside which would be her ghost or whether there's anything left of her of the original her or if there even was an original her Mm mm-hmm uh, she works for a place called Section... She works for Section 9, right? Yeah. Which is like a, a government agency, and there is an other, there is another government agency called Section 6. Um, and she, like, has, like, a... She works with a guy called Bato, and uh, another guy called Togusa. Uh, Togusa's, like, a rookie cop, and Bato's, like, her partner. Um, and they are hunting for a... Um, hacker called the Puppet Master. <laughs> am I am I all right? Yeah, so yeah, doing, yeah, yeah, doing good so far. Perfect. Okay, ten out of ten. Okay, because <laughs> I I'm, I mean, guys, I really struggled. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, basically, the the world this is set in twenty twenty nine, and the world has become much more computerized. Basically all the nations have kind of merged in a kind of cyberspace. There is a net which everyone can connect to through these ports in the back of their head, or at least the genetically altered people can. And that there is, the, the, we're a much more connected world in terms of this net, this virtual world. But on a street level, nations and governments still exist, but are kind of struggling to exist in this more connected world. Um, and the puppet master is hacking into things. I'm not quite, sh- quite sure why he's hacking into things or what he wants to do. Oh, but I, I guess that's kind of obscured because there is another government agency called Section Six, who are also after the puppet master. And, and that's when things start to get confusing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just quickly, like pretty much everything you said there was correct. The important thing to note is that Section Six who are, like, the, they're basically the CIA, I guess. They're sort of in charge of foreign yeah, espionage. Foreign, foreign yeah. espionage, yeah. 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 They they created the Puppet Master to be a weapon. But we don't know that to start with, do we? We only know that one Section 6 and Section 9 clash. Yeah. And the Puppet Master manages to get himself into a shell, into a, like, a genetically... Into it, well, into body. a cyborg body, yeah. Into a cyborg body, because and well, the puppet what, master kind of then explains to them that he wanted to get into this body. Yeah, well, basically, like and they started they, out as Program Two Five Hundred One. Yeah, they created Project Two Five Hundred One, which yeah. was uh, supposed to be a weapon, but it achieved self awareness, and they, in attempting to capture it and put it back, sort of in its box. Sorry, it, it took refuge in a cyborg body. And mm-hmm. then went to Section 9 for Asylum, basically. And while in Section 9 it meets the Major and sort of recognises sort of kinship with someone who was also on the border between being cybernetic and human. Mm-hmm. And they merge their consciousnesses to create a new life form, and that is the yeah, conclusion so, of the film. So <laughs> yeah. there's like a big there's like a big chase between sections section six try and get rid of the body, presumably to destroy the puppet master and hide what they did. Yeah, exactly. Whereas section nine go after it and Kusanagi eventually gets there and kind of dives into the other body to talk to the puppet master. And yeah, they find this kind of kinship and the puppet master wants to experience mortality inside a body and offers in return to Kusanagi the kind of opportunity to have a kind of deeper existence on, on the net, on the kind of cyber plane. Mm-hmm. 
and so that if they if they form into if they merge into one kind of consciousness, they can both achieve what they want to on these different kind of planes of existence. Yeah. Okay. So this, yeah, this bit's a bit vague, but um, the puppet master has figured out how to copy his ghost, his actual consciousness um, between uh, over the internet, basically. Uh, which is not mm. something that anyone else is able to do. They mention that uh, it's usually just a kind of uh, a shadow of the actual consciousness when they do that. But um, he's able to do it uh, correctly. So it allows the major to um, take advantage of, of this method he's worked out so she can go and exist on the internet, basically. <laughs> yeah, mm. and therefore transmit herself to any other cybernetic body on the planet. Yeah. Which, like, that's a, that's a desirable state for her. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and I mean, James, you put down in our notes like one of the first questions, like we're posing in the notes to each other, that is this film too dense to properly (laughs) understand the plot on a first viewing? Um, And I think we've got we we've kind of explored that here. That I think I was just about able to keep up, but I do wonder whether, like, I mean, Ian, you already mentioned about watching this multiple, multiple times, and then you know, like. you know, watching it with Japanese in Japanese and actually starting to understand it. But yeah. I wonder whether, like, the the point of that might be actually that you probably need to watch this movie a couple of times once to get your head around the plot, and then if you rewatch it, you don't have to worry about the plot, and then you can actually deal with the ideas of the film and focus on the visuals because the kind of the themes and the ideas and the way it looks are probably a lot more interesting than just the surface level plot, even if it is hard to keep up with. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things about Ghost in the Shell is that it's been like, there's like 15 different Ghost in the Shell properties. There's comic, there's uh, two TV shows, um, a series of TV movies, um, this film, the remake of this film, and a sequel to the film called Innocence. Just tons and tons of stuff that isn't really um, uh, continuity-wise the same at all. Like there's always something which stops them being compatible. And I think um, this takes the bits of the comic and applies a lot of um, uh, Mamoru Oshii's directorial style to it, which um, is not really there in any of the other pieces of work. So just the kind of um, the ponderous uh, interludes. Uh, I don't know if you'll have liked those or not, but where you'll just be like, "Ah, here's three and a half minutes of stuff and the streets and some music. And the plot (laughs) grinds to a complete halt during which... Yeah, I was actually um, reading. Um, so I went. I went to read a couple of reviews of this movie afterwards because I was like, they might explain it to me. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, right, right at the top of the Rotten Tomatoes page was a five star review from uh, one of my favourite critics, Robbie Collin. Um, and he he talks about that section, you know, in particular, and says like um, he got, he actually calls that scene the film's centerpiece scene, one of the s- single greatest animated sequences ever created. <laughs> where Kusanagi wanders through the nameless city where the people around her make their way silently from place to place, hypnotised by advertising, defeated by the rain. Is she still human? Are they? This is a work of profound and melancholic beauty, every bit as essential in the 21st century as it was in the 20th. Which, first of all, great piece of writing. And second of all, I found myself going... 
Oh shit, I gonna I need to go back and watch that scene again because that was the <laughs> scene that I kind of checked out a little bit on because there wasn't any dialogue. Yeah. Um, but I think I think he's right, but I think that maybe when you're watching the film the first time that's that's very difficult to appreciate something like that. Yeah, the fir- like the first time you watch it you're you're kind of wondering what the point of that sequence is and it doesn't really like the the time you get into the sort of deeper ideas are when they're literally discussing them. Like when they, you know, they're on the boat and they have a discussion about philosophy. I did think, I did kind of get that sense from a lot of the film that it was kind of like action sequence, pause and talk about plot and ideas. <laughs> action sequence, yeah. silent sequence, <laughs> pause to talk about more plot and ideas. Action, talk about all of the plot. Action, <laughs> the end. There's even a, a melancholic part where they're chasing, in the middle of a car chase later on, like um, suddenly it's... Uh, Kusanagi up on the helicopter kind of looking sad waiting for the helicopter to actually get to the car and it's just shots of them setting up the the blockade and people <laughs> holding sniper rifles and it's playing kind of like a uh, melancholic music yeah exactly <laughs> oh, we should talk about that score that score is properly haunting yeah um, what, what do you feel about the use of the music in this film oh like I love it I mean it's so you know, it's so weird. original and weird, yeah, and it's, it's so unique to the film. Like, it's notable that when when they made the sequel to this film, which, as Ian mentioned, is called Innocence, uh, it's not adapted from the comics, it's just the director came up with his own story and made that. Mm. But it it stands out that they brought the Chinese opera back. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen the word balletic used quite a lot, and you know, and operatic, and it it does have that sense, and, and like uh, I think it, I think it might have been in Robbie's review as well, talking about the the opening sequence, which is kind of um, sorry, the title sequence, which is kind of where that that score kicks in for the first time, mm-hmm. um, where you're seeing Kusanagi's body kind of being assembled, her cyborg body being assembled, yes, um, and the the music almost makes it sound like a kind of religious rite, mm-hmm. specifically in that opening sequence. Um, what I think works about that is that it takes the the kind of tension of something that is super high-tech happening in front of you and then scores it with what is a kind of ancient traditional art form. Mm. And I think that's very deliberate in, in kind of giving texture to what is, a, you know, a cyberpunk dystopia, essentially. Mm. Like, it, it's a deliberate choice to, to kind of marry those two basically disparate ideas and say this is this is the theme of the film like how does everything new exist with everything old should we talk about ghost in the shell in relationship to its source material <laughs> i mean how how close is the relationship is this is this i mean you said it is adapting the comic is it adapting like a certain arc i mean because again i might be betraying my ignorance to manga but is is this like one part of the story in the same way that Akira is just one small part of the of the manga or okay. is it is it taking disparate ideas from different areas or is is it even still is it even telling the same story is it asking the same questions as the manga I does? mean there are lots of similar themes and ideas explored in the in the source material the important thing to note is that the film is based on a specific arc from the comic, which kind of runs through... Basically, in the manga, sort of every chapter, they will... Section 9 will go on a specific case involving their remit of public security. Mm. And throughout those cases, they come up against the puppet master in various guises. 
and when it was collected in the West, they just took the chapters with Puppet Master content and collected those as the Ghost in the Shell right. novel. So what happens is, if you want to read the comic in full, you have to buy Ghost in the Shell, and then a kind of supplemental book called Ghost in the Shell 1.5, which is the rest of the chapters that <laughs> didn't have anything to do with the, with the Puppet Master. That really, really sucks. Yeah. Like, there's no... It, it's annoying, as a fan, that there's no chronological collection of the stories in the order they were published. Yeah. But so uh, what is what you're saying is is it more like then in terms of these like case of the week kind of things is it more is it more pulpy in that sense is it is it does it have the came, the same kind of somber introspective you know exploration of gender and identity and you know what identity is in an increasingly computerized world or, or is <laughs> or is it more or is it more kind of like hey Here's this criminal that we're facing this week. Yeah, it's fair to say it's a lot more action-oriented. Like, it does... Those themes do come up. Uh, but I would say the biggest difference is that the Ghost in the Shell manga is very light-hearted. And, like, there are things like Bato and the major uh, trick Aramaki into... Sorry, they're, tr- they're trying to play a practical joke on him in which they blow up his exhaust... And he manages to get the drop on them and then, like, rides off on a moped. Like, it's it's genuinely hilar- a hilarious moment to see these, like, soldiers acting like children. Um, right. But it's fair to say that pretty much every subsequent adaptation just ignored all of that stuff in favour of the more ponderous identity politics and things that were introduced in the in the anime in the anime movie so like the the source material is it's recognizably ghost in the shell and the characters are recognizably themselves but it's also a lot broader um the, i would say the main thing that you get from both is the kind of fetishization of technology and specifically weaponry like there are the 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 manga has footnotes explaining yes. exactly how like he'll sketch a gun and then do a sort of 50 60 word explanation of how of how the reload mechanism works on it or something or he'll draw a submarine and say that the torpedo ports wouldn't actually be here but it it looked better this way when you drew it or something <laughs> yeah it like it's really detail oriented <laughs> yeah the manga the manga is about the technology whereas the film is about the philosophy and so what's your relationship with the manga Ian? like are you it, do you prefer it on the page i mean i assume for both of you that the movie was the way in but yeah, I, I have a good appreciation of the um, the manga. I've never actually read the extra chapters, um, though, so I, I should definitely do that, um, <laughs> as it would allow me to talk better at length about it. But in contrast to that, I think my favourite form of Ghost in the Shell is probably the TV show, uh, Standalone Complex, which um, right. is it's, it's not compatible with the film, which is really irritating. Because uh, <laughs> it's about uh, like early on in it, it's about Togusa joining, and then they kind of have um, yeah, like twenty-two episodes of uh, villain of the week stuff, which is intersected with another kind of uh, oh, they keep running into a uh, a hacker over and over again, and eventually that turns into the plot properly for the last six episodes and stuff. It's really good, but uh, I, <laughs> I'm not sure you'll want to watch a uh, seventeen hours more <laughs> of Ghost in the Shell at this point. <laughs> And it also has some of the more um, kind of tertiary characters in it, which uh, don't manage to make it from the comic into this film. Um, there are some more members of Section 9 who, <laughs> yeah, didn't quite make the cut. And it's always fun to see what they're up to. Yeah, like the, I would say the 
the TV series is probably the closest to the comic in that it's sometimes funny and it has every episode has a different idea at the at the heart of it. the The film is about how the major goes from being in section nine to becoming this new life form, whereas the TV series is involve is about sort of how section nine establishes itself and how they operate. And so, in a way, you can see, like, there. I think there's one scene in the se- in the film, uh, they in which they refer to Togusa as being a rookie. Mm. Which, if you took that line of dialogue out, the f- the movie could adequately serve as a kind of bookend to the TV series. Yes, yeah, that's the yeah. only thing that prevents it from being compatible, probably. Yeah, and the TV series was made afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. years afterwards, like ten right. ten years afterwards, maybe. Yeah. So how do you feel about the movie dialing up the philosophy as opposed to all the other versions? Do you think it do you think it works and do you think it has the the depth that it strives to or or, or is there anything in there particularly that you find interesting or that strikes a chord? It's kind of hard for me to look at it objectively in that sense because like when I was a teenager and I first watched the movie, the fact that something was exploring those ideas was what excited me about it. Like, obviously, I'd never read William Gibson and The Matrix didn't exist, but that's what excited me. I can't say for certain whether I'd feel the same way if I came to it new, but when I rewatched Ghost in the Shell, the movie, like, that's that's something that I still enjoy about it, is the, you know, the exploration of those ideas. Yeah, um, I think they're pretty interesting uh, additions to it. I think, again, it's a problem with the, the dub, was that a lot of that stuff was very poorly explained in the uh, English acting script. So um, a combination of uh, the boat scene and then the sequence after that is usually about where I fell asleep while watching <laughs> Ghost in the Shell, traditionally. Yeah, to be, would... to be woken up by, a, you know, machine guns on a tank. Yeah, someone fighting a tank or something. You're like, oh, cool. So, yeah, maybe (laughs) I don't have the great appreciation for it. But that stuff's back in the sequel. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, would you say that one of the main themes of the movie is this kind of, this this search for identity in an era, well, and and this is kind of like pretty presciently predicting what's going to happen, what would happen to us in a more computerized age and obviously this is full-on sci-fi and um you know (laughs) much more speculative than where we actually are in 2015 but 20 years later i i think the this kind of sense of having online identities and you know as as opposed to our real ones uh does does strike somewhat true i mean there's this there's this blade runner-esque i mean because this film reminded me of blade runner an awful lot partly in the design of this kind of, like, mash of Western and Eastern culture and the the idea of what, what makes us human, you know, it, it, in this in this sci-fi setting and, and you know, how, how that can relate back to us looking at our own identities and personalities now. I was really struck by uh, the existential dread that uh, Major has <laughs> at one point in the film where... It's where they've uh, found the body of the puppet master that the puppet master has mm. put himself into. And it's the same model as her or from the same factory that she was. her body was made in. And it seems to have like a ghost in it. And she's talking about how she's never seen her own brain matter or something. So she really has no proof that she's even a, a real or ever was a real human. It could all just be illusionary on something mm. so that Section 9 has made up to keep her 
wanting to work there. Yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, and she can't quit because they own her body. So. <laughs> yeah. It's a real Deckard moment. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, the, except Deckard is never smart enough to realise it. <laughs> the the scene I like is when the guy who's been uh, ghost hacked and he like yeah. he thinks he's got a family, but he hasn't. He's just like a kind of uh, sleeper agent, and he's. You know, he's got no life in there going like, oh, well, a sad case, like, he'll probably never recover. That was one of my favourite scenes in the movie, and, and mostly because it is dealing with the kind of themes and ideas that the rest of the movie is, but I, I actually felt something in regards to that guy, whereas, I, I'll be honest, I, I, I while I appreciated quite a lot of the, what this movie was saying, in a way it left me cold in a, like, I didn't feel emotionally invested like this is making me think yeah it it was more a a cerebral experience i i Mm -hmm. I found it very hard to identify ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue nile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. With any of these characters, given that they were all these kind of genetically engineered, physical perfection kind of characters, talking about lives and experiencing ideas that are so far removed from any kind of experience (laughs) we can have... I found the ideas very interesting, but then when you look at that, that that guy's story, I actually did find properly heartbreaking and tragic, and I think that's probably the one moment where the movie actually emotionally affected me. Even the arms dealer guy, there's a there's one of those more reflective moments in just after the chase through the market where he's just being stalked by the major, yeah. and suddenly it goes all quiet, and he's like running through the water, and there's a, like a silent plane that's just overhead for some reason, and he's just standing there in the middle of like a flooded. A wasteland and just kind of looks sad for some reason <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird moment um, but yeah I think that's why Tokus is there it's because you're meant to yeah. be the most relatable he's I love it the bit where he starts doing cop stuff he's like aha I noticed the door <laughs> closed a bit later and I'm checking the lift sensors and I got my revolver and he's just doing normal people normal cop stuff as opposed to making heads explode yeah, he's not brain hacking anyone <laughs> Yeah, I felt like you needed a little bit more of him almost. That like maybe if it had been more of a trio rather than feeling like a cop, like these two cops who are partners and this third younger inexperienced guy who occasionally helps them out. Yeah, uh, I do wonder whether that he he might have served as a better kind of POV character while Kusanagi is kind of there doing all of the interesting cerebral stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a you make a good point that he like he should be the audience entry character really because otherwise the main pairing of the film is one a woman who is entirely cyborg speaking to a guy who is mostly cyborg. And I say this fully expecting that that's probably what the live-action adaptation will do, and we'll all hate that it does it, because it'll be dumbing down this idea, giving us a, you know, like a relatable character that we can, that we can root for and see this world through his eyes. Uh, I mean, when they cast, I don't know, Zac Efron as that part in the, in the American remake... We're all going to hate it. But I'm going to be secretly thinking, thank you. Thank you for giving me Zac Efron. (laughs) (laughs) The the Major is pretty universally, in all the adaptions, a pretty sullen um, character. She's 
um, yeah, not <laughs> you're never really meant to feel all that much for her. I don't think uh, she just doesn't just have the a range of emotions um, in them. <laughs> in a sense, that's quite interesting that that she is that sort of character. Like, yeah, and I, I know uh, there are a lot of people who really kind of idolise her as a character simply because she is probably as developed as someone you know, sort of male action leads. Like, hmm. you know, she's kind of a cybernetic John McClane. Yeah, I mean, she, she's definitely a well-sketched character, and she definitely is interesting and is thinking interesting things. And that's what I mean. Like, uh, intellectually, she was my favourite character, but, like, I just couldn't connect with her on an emotional level. <laughs> but I, I know what you mean about the fact that... I mean, and we should probably talk about this next, that the fact that she is a female action lead but that it's not the action isn't really what defines her because i think there's there's such a shortcut in movies to going like okay so uh, this this female character is doing badass action stuff so isn't she a strong character Mm -hmm. well no not necessarily i mean she might be strong physically but that doesn't necessarily mean you've sketched a good character it just means you've you've drawn a bad character in the way that you have 99% 99% of the time for men as well Yeah. Um, in that kind of role but that definitely isn't the case here and I think if that's the reason you know if that's a reason why people really like this character because yes she's badass and kickass but she is also super super interesting and has um, like an interior emotional life that you that you can at least understand then mm-hmm. yeah I, I completely understand that what I do find interesting though is how how this film kind of looks at gender and looks at sexuality because it seems to me that this this film is kind of saying in a computer age that those kind of things become less and less relevant and almost the fact that this movie leads to the birth of a new life form between two between a person and a computer program merging almost removes the need for gender and sexuality in this computerized world whatsoever Okay, so I'm going to tell you two interesting things about the comic then. Um, Excellent. In the comic, it's made explicit in, I use the word literally, that uh, the Major is a lesbian. Right. And also, in the final sequence, she is in a male body rather than the body of a young girl. Like, when she wakes up after merging with the Puppet Master, Mm. she's got her own head, but the body she's in is male. Right, okay. Um, And in the film, they switch that to being a young girl. You know, it, those ideas that you're talking about are explicitly part of Ghost in the Shell in most of its forms, I would say. You have, like, the puppet master speaking with a male voice out of two different female bodies. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. it's definitely kind of has the message that gender is like a choice, <laughs> almost. And I don't... I, I mean, so we... There is quite a lot of nudity in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> quite quite regularly with uh, Kusanagi. And when she was naked, yes, she had breasts and she had a noticeably female body. I wasn't sure whether she was supposed to have female genitalia or not, or whether that was something that, like, she had been built into this, like, perfect kind of strong fighter who can be perfect in this government agency whether actually she didn't need genitalia and that it wasn't there <laughs> or is that just or is that just the animation not showing anything the comic makes it clearer that the body she's in is supposed to be like an adult female and working like an adult females i think right. in the in the anime yeah they tend to use the nudity 
Like, they don't use it for titillation. Like, they basically try and make it as practical as possible with the intention of showing that she doesn't really... Like, she doesn't have any hang-ups and she doesn't think of herself as naked because it's not her body. Yeah. Like, you could potentially accuse it of being sort of male gazy in the way that her body is kind of this sort of perfect, uh, what, gynoid form. Mm. But I think, especially if you're familiar with other anime and you see the kind of thing, it's called... Like, in anime, it's called fan service, which is, like, there is a female character, so in this episode she's going to be in a swimsuit for spurious reasons. And I think appreciating... Yeah, all, of, all of popular culture. Yeah, well, quite. But <laughs> yeah. more, a lot more so, considerably more so in anime, that is a, right. a trope you'll encounter. Because I, I actually thought this movie felt oddly, like, sexless. Like, when the male and female characters were together, and considering how often the major was naked, I think there's only one moment where, like, Bato kind of looks at her taking her swimsuit off after she gets out of the pool and kind of, like looks and kind of then goes, oh, no, I shouldn't be looking, and looks away. But mostly, the the discussions that are being had when she is naked are just so matter-of-fact, and she'll be stood there naked in front of male characters, and they don't give second thoughts to the fact that she's naked, and she doesn't give second thoughts to the fact that she's naked. So, it, it yeah, it to me felt almost like this was a world being presented almost where sex was falling away because of this cyberscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair interpretation of, of what they show. It's very sterile whenever it happens. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, they've got the, the torso of the puppet master lady there, but there's nothing particularly <laughs> sexualized about I mean, it, despite Unless that's showing. your thing. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's not... I, yeah. I, I got the sense most of the time when we were seeing her body that it was like yes, you were supposed to be kind of objectifying it in a way, but not in a sexual way, more in a, in a wow, this is like a perfect physical form kind of way. And she has all the muscles she needs um, to do, you know, whatever task she's going to come up against. And, and that's, and then that's really amplified in that final scene where she's trying to rip that like gun robot apart and all her muscles start bulging and eventually her arms even rip off yeah for some reason there are there are a few bits of this film that make it into every single ghost in the shell adaption and that's one of them at some point the the major will attempt to rip the hatch off a tank and rip off her own arms in the process just as well as there's always a scene where she'll be on the top of a building and fall past the window shoot someone in the head until their head explodes and then (laughs) Go into optical <laughs> camouflage. Uh, but Actually, that's a, it's a very nice segue into my, my next question. Was going to be, I mean, so if if we loosely agree that the nudity is not gratuitous, do you think the violence is gratuitous? Particularly <laughs> that kind of like head exploding, seeing spinal cords and bones popping out of skin and all that kind of stuff. Were you expecting that in the intro there? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of see it as a deliberate choice to... Like, it's so matter-of-fact about people being... Like, the fact that some of these people are mostly made of metal. That I think it's also emphasising that other people are still flesh and bone. But do you think... And and, and emphasising how brittle they are? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely an element of it in, like, saying, you know, you're fragile and this person isn't. Like, this is the future. Like, it's sort of something that you can draw more on from when you've seen other adaptations 
But I think that's definitely part of Ghost in the Shell's overall fabric, is the idea that technology is stronger than flesh and bone. Yeah. And Togus is always considered a bit of a weirdo for not being more um, cyberized than he is. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, he's got a cyber brain, which is yeah. like a it's like a casing around your brain that allows you to plug into the net, so you can but, shout into each other's brains. Yeah, but the major is mm. pretty much the only character who is entirely um, entirely cyborg, aside from her brain, because uh, she was yeah. put, she was put in that body as a young child. Whereas Togusa is the only one who just has a cyborg, uh, a cyber brain implant. Skype, basically, in his brain. (laughs) Um, James, one of the other questions that you've posed in the notes is whether we think that the property fetishises the power of covert security services. What do you think about that kind of theme of the movie? Because this is, I mean, we've got, like, two kind of warring factions who seem to be, you know, kind of, like, just different sections of the same government. I mean, I... It's something that I wrestle with when I watch Ghost in the Shell. It's kind of, I enjoy the action and the political wrangling, but at the same time, like, if a if a agency like Section 9 or even Section 6 was, like, openly operating, you would be absolutely terrified. Because, <laughs> like, they, you know, they execute foreign and local nationals sort of at the whim, at their own whim. Like, they don't seem to answer to anyone... I, I sort of compare it to, just to keep regular listeners interested, it's kind of like people talk about how some superheroes can be interpreted as kind of like fascist, like Batman beating up the poor or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, in in real life, if there was a guy, a, a millionaire who went around kicking the hell out of basically mentally ill people, like, you would not... <laughs> You would not enjoy that person. You would not root no. for him. And it sort of it comes back to to that with me. Like if Section Nine existed, no matter how pure their intentions appear to be, you would be horrified to see them in the street. Like if they appeared, you would run the other way. Hmm. It's it's something that runs through um, superhero movies, isn't it? I think we're probably going to get to it more and more in. Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe when we get through to the movies that have more a lot more of S.H.I.E.L.D. involvement. Mm -hmm. The way that security services are depicted in comics and these kind of movies and, you know, whether we should be rooting for them or not. I think it's it's one of the reasons why I'm continually reading comics or watching comic book movies and coming back to Bond and, like, thinking, that reminds me of Bond in that certain way or in that (laughs) that other certain way. I'm sure there is, like, a, a... a really direct relationship between those two. It's interesting that Bond is now going to become a comic. But yeah, I I think it's it's maybe a theme that we're going to keep revisiting on this podcast, the way that security services are depicted. Yeah, it's sort of... of I tell you what it reminds me of most, actually, and I, even as someone who hasn't actually watched 24, like, <laughs> I yeah. feel like there's a lot of CTU in Section 9. Definitely. And, and for a, a larger discussion on this, I think watching towards the end of that first season of the TV show, uh, some of the other elements of the Japanese government realize what Section 9 are doing and try very hard to stop them from doing it. <laughs> They're like, oh, no, we can't have you doing that. What's this? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a good exp- exploration of whether Section 9 should be allowed to exist I- in that stuff, which <laughs> I, I, I think... Be- I believe good. the answer they come to is no as well. No. <laughs> okay. Um, in regards to this film and kind of the impacts it's had since, so obviously this was, as you say, kind of like one of the two key texts in terms of anime that had a kind of 
crossover western appeal. And, I mean, the obvious one is The Matrix. I mean, and it's obvious from kind of the word go when you see those green numbers, the number <laughs> the number rain kind of going down the screen and you're like, oh, this came out four years before The Matrix. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I think, but I think the Wachowskis have been fairly open about, you know, being influenced by various properties and this being one of the key ones. But what kind of impacts do you think it had on, uh, you know, like film culture in the years since? One thing I would say, actually, is it and Akira have kind of a lot to answer for in significantly narrowing people's perception of what anime is and what it can do. Because <laughs> they're very, like, as much as I like both Ghost in the Shell and Akira, they're very kind of action, sci-fi oriented properties. Horribly violent. Horribly violent, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. like, And people tend to associate the genre with... Uh, the medium, sorry, with those two films, which are actually a very narrow part of the genre. Like, it, it's reversed a little bit now that Studio Ghibli and stuff have penetrated the popular uh, popular culture to some extent as well. As much as I love those films, I think they kind of obscure what what is interesting and good about anime, which is that it's a very broad uh, medium that can do, and frequently does, a lot more than, than you'll see in live-action cinema. Not least because it's comparatively a lot cheaper to to put together an anime film than to shoot something a little weird and offbeat okay so well well, let's explore then directly what what do you think what has ghost in the shell influenced outside of the matrix or specifically in the matrix what what influence did it have well in in the matrix like it's sort of as well as the thematics they went to that like it's down literally down to they steal individual shots from Ghost in the Shell and just replicate them in the Matrix. The watermelons. Like, yeah, like, they're, someone running away gets shot and a watermelon explodes. Like, they take refuge behind a pillar and someone machine guns the side of the pillar and it kind of, fought, you know, <laughs> collapses in. Like, if you, if you start looking... that's direct homage, though, rather, oh, than, rather than... Definitely. Like, if you, if you look how the shots are constructed... Like, there's just no question of it being them going, oh, let's just copy that bit. And then, and then, so like them jacking into this virtual plane through ports in the back of their neck. Mm-hmm. And we also mentioned the, the green rain and some of the thematic ideas. Um, by the way, I love The Matrix. I think The Matrix is an amazing <laughs> yeah, film. And even if it film. stole every frame from <laughs> all these other things, it's still brilliant. Also, very controversially, is it a superhero movie? Should, <laughs> should, it, be, should it be on the docket for a future yeah, cinematic a universe? Question, yeah. We should put that out well, to the listeners. Listeners on Twitter, like, get back to us and tell us whether we should be covering The Matrix I mean, at some point. You, please bear in mind, you would have to watch the sequel <laughs> if you admit that the first one is also a superhero <laughs> I, film. Maybe. There are Matrix comics. <laughs> There's a Matrix anime. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it ends with Neo literally supermanning it up into the sky. <laughs> hmm. Is there anything else you guys want to discuss specifically about the film? Generally, I, I was going to say, what did you, how would you rate it? Like, did you think uh, it was a great film or was it just a, a kind of think piece <laughs> for you uh, personally? Like I say, I think like intellectually, I definitely engaged with it, um, and and maybe emotionally, not so much. Um, yeah. I thought the I thought some of the animation was incredible. 
Um, I, I much preferred it to Akira. I've got to say, oh, yeah. I'm not not completely on board with Akira. Akira's um, not a really good. It's not a particularly great film, but it was just what the I, one that everyone saw. So I don't think so. Um, but yeah, so, that, so there was there was lots of stuff that I that I really liked about it and found very interesting. Like I said, I did watch this movie earlier today for the first time, and I'm not sure I was able to fully get to grips with it. And like a, a, a detailed, like hour-long conversation like this is helpful to doing that. But um, <laughs> I, 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 I almost don't feel qualified to fully, <laughs> to fully like dish out a judgment on it. Fair enough. But, yeah, yeah it, I would say intrigued, and yeah, I would, I would quite like to maybe in a few weeks or a few months' time just pop it back in and. Um, pop back in the DVD player and, and try and grapple with it once again. Yeah, I, I was very interested going into this uh, to hear what someone who's just watched it for the first time thinks because it was such a big part of um, my, well, <laughs> formative years, let's say. I, I had it mm. on VHS um, back when I first found the weird anime section at the back of a uh, MVC or whatever it was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, w- I first watched it on uh, Sci-Fi in probably sort of 97 or 98 maybe yeah and i went out and bought the vhs and it was the first dvd i bought first oh right yeah yeah i rep- when i went to uni i replaced my vhs's with dvds and i bought this and groundhog day and the craft um okay so before we move on to uh, your recommendations uh, and the pitch we should probably discuss that this movie is at the moment, in development for a live-action American remake. And obviously, we'll have to wait and see whether this does actually come to pass, because, you know, a, a, a film we just mentioned, Akira, has been trying to uh, to assemble some kind of live-action production for many, many years now, and, and stumbling at almost every turn. But at the moment, um, a Ghost in the Shell live-action movie is set for March 2017 release, directed by Rupert Sanders, um, and uh, starring Scarlett Johansson uh, in in the lead role as the major. Um, What what do you guys think about that? Because I know the internet reacted fairly vociferously um, (laughs) at the time that casting was announced. Uh, Specifically, I would say there has never been... Like, I'm happy to be proven wrong if anyone can think of one, but I don't think there's ever been a successful live-action adaptation of anime. No, there has not. And I think to take... Is, a, is that the same case for manga? Uh, well, no, because The Ring... Was The Ring a novel or manga first? Uh, that's a good question. An old boy's a manga, right? Well, okay. Yeah, 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 of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, old boy's a good one, then. But things like Battle Royale was a... I think that was a novel and a manga before it was a film. Right. Like, you know... So, and you would have to imagine, probably, that this adaptation is riffing on the movie rather than the manga. Well, that's the thing, like... The movie is what is... is has some cachet with Western audiences. Yeah, exactly. So, the, the movie is going to be the inspiration for the live-action movie, I would say, with almost certainty. Hmm. And that, for me means we should rank it alongside the likes of Avatar and Dragon Ball rather than, you know, anything that remotely worked. Right. If they stick to the source material as um, accurately as they can, it has the chance of at least being somewhat uh, admirable. Stuff like Dragon Ball, it's just like, oh no, we set it in the real world. And it's like, (laughs) why? Why would you... Mm. 
Why would you do that? Um, so if they if they really really genuinely go for it, I don't really care who is playing the major. Um, but it would be interesting to see what that looks like. Uh, it like, seems like it has a lot of um, most of the anime seems very readily adaptable exactly. into into yeah. a live action Hollywood movie because half of the movie is action. <laughs> Yeah. Like, it, it fully is half the movie is action, and you, you've you got... So that straight away, you've got a Hollywood movie with, like, four big action set pieces, um, and you kind of scatter this thought-provoking sci-fi idea stuff around it. Um, I, I, can, I, I could really see it working if... They try and, uh, and I mean, this would this would be my advice to whoever is writing the script to take the ideas of the of the anime and keep maybe some of the key conversations, but mostly just try and make it a more understandable, accessible. You'll maybe just make the plot a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 then just leave the ideas stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's worth pointing out. Like Scarlett Johansson was in her, which I think is a movie that explores similar territory in terms of computers and identity. I mean, it does it through a different yeah. filter, but it's not like it's an entirely alien concept. I have um, I have a real bee in my bonnet about the online reaction to Scarlett Johansson's casting in this, and. I had a slightly different bee in my bonnet when I heard it the first time, and it's kind of it's kind of mutated after actually seeing the movie. The first one was that, so it seems, yes, like whitewashing is a problem in Hollywood, and it's a problem in Western popular culture, and it's a really bad thing. What really bugs me is that every time something like this happens, and Scarlett Hansen is cast as as this character in a in an in a Eastern property, people say like, "Oh, this is ridiculous! Scarlett Hansen shouldn't be playing this character." I tell you who should: Rinko Kikuchi. <laughs> what the one Japanese actress you can think of? You mean you mean like the one Japanese actress who was in? Pacific Rim a couple of years ago yeah. and it's like the same thing like when people are saying there should be a black James Bond it should be Idris Elba <laughs> okay I mean uh, okay personally I don't think Idris Elba would be a very good Bond I think he's a very good actor I don't think he'd be right for Bond in the same way that I don't think Ryan Gosling would be right for Bond um, <laughs> like uh, just the, the two actors who for me don't fit perfectly with Bond like why are you like have you got any other suggestions like I'm all behind having a black Bond hey what about an Asian Bond no one ever mentions that how about we have like a British Indian or a British Pakistani Bond like what about all these different ethnic minorities and people never seem to like it's always like no it should be Idris Elba (laughs) like we get very focused on this specific idea and uh, yeah, that, I think that's. I think that's almost more patronising to the culture that you're talking about, or the race that you're talking about, um, than it is to cast someone like Scarlett Johansson as a character like Kusanagi. The second point after watching this film was actually, I think if you if you cast up this film around Scarlett Johansson, I think this is the crucial thing. If you cast the rest of the film around Scarlett Johansson as majority Japanese and I would, you know, like uh, so a character like um, so was it Tagusa? Tagusa, yeah. Yeah. 
uh, Togusa, if, if, if they cast, like, you know, characters like him with Japanese actors, I think that's a lot more important because, weirdly, and yes, I, 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 <laughs> the wider issue of whitewashing is still a problem, but weirdly, in, in this in this particular instance, I think a white actress could be very interesting given that she is mostly cyborg and that she has been kind of constructed as this, like, yeah, she is this kind of like physically perfect, like in, in the comics, in the anime, muscular, but also like curvaceous. And Scarlett Hansen, I think, would be a very interesting casting for that in the exact same way that she was an incredible casting choice for Under the Skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fair to say, like, if you're going to do it with any character, uh, the major is someone who could stand up to that kind of reinterpretation. Simply mm. because, like, she's, you know, it's debatable whether she'd even see herself as Japanese. Yeah, and, she, and, and, yeah. And, and especially given that the movie, actually, I mean, I know you say, you've said it's been, like, very clearly stated as Japan in the other, you know, in the, in the, in the manga or in the TV show or whatever, but in the movie, it, it's very carefully the, the, the nation is never referred to. Mm-hmm. And yes, it looks Eastern, but it looks Eastern in the same way that Los Angeles does in Blade Runner. Scarlett Hansen to me seemed a, a stunningly good casting choice based on the movie that I watched. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you can you can sort of say the point I would say is if it's an adaptation and it's quite likely they'll be writing it as West as in the West and casting it as West using Western actors. Like, it is an adaptation. It's not a direct interpretation of the film. And in the film, their nationality is not a point. It's not like the major is the one Japanese character in a room of white people. Mm. In which case, removing her ethnicity would be a problem. But if you're just doing a Western translation, well, that's not, you know... That's not as big an issue as removing from visibility characters of ethnic minorities in settings where they are minorities. Like I say, I think I would have much more of a problem if this movie announces like a completely white cast around her than I would if it's if it's just her or just a variety of characters. I guess it depends where they keep the character. Like, if they have a white guy called Ishikawa, that's going to be weird. And in, in regards to Scarlett Hansen directly, I mean, um, I mentioned Under the Skin. I don't know, have you, have you guys seen Under the Skin? I'm afraid not, no. No. Like, so, like it's it's one of my favorite movies of last year and probably of like the, the last decade. It's just an incredible, incredible. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch it for ages. But... And I would actually say, after having watched it, there are there are things about it that Ghost in the Shell, Ghost in the Shell, was reminding me of scenes in Under the Skin, particularly this title sequence where her body is constructed. There is there is a similar conceit in Under the Skin. And in Under the Skin, she is an alien being kind of put into, like, a, a human skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, there, are, there are definitely visual things and the, the whole idea of gender identity um, is definitely a theme that runs through that film as well. Yeah. Um, it, it much more much more in regards to sexuality in Under the Skin. But, yeah, it... it, it it shares it shares some ideas and some and some visual ideas. Um, I'd be very interested if anyone's written about that or if Jonathan Glazer's spoken about it. It might just be pure coincidence, and, but um, and... yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so is this still the seminal manga adaptation that deserves to be talked about above all others? Well, as James said earlier, it, it's just one of the ones that uh, there was this big kind of like push. I think it was uh, yeah. Um, early 90s to to get a whole bunch of stuff across and there was like this and uh 
Ninja Blaze and a lot of hentai, which they accidentally brought over as well and didn't really know what to do with. Hentai's the porn, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know that. I've That's... never heard of it before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, violence Jack Urutsukidoji. Uh, often the worst translations, just incomprehensible butcherings of the source material combined with British censorship laws that just absolute <laughs> nonsense. It's quite remarkable. Um, the the worst thing is the, uh, Geno Cyber. You should look that up sometime. Um, but yeah, the, as I said, this was one of the, the the first real kind of breakout hits. It's like, oh no, anime's cool. You should see Akira and Ghost in the Shell and Ninja Scroll. And um, I, I think it's a good way to uh, open the door into further anime. Like I've sorry to keep banging on about it, but our TV show is um, quite something. And uh, then you kind of break out from that and realize, oh, there's stuff like um, as a manga dior and um, whatever your anime genre of choice, because as James said earlier, it's a medium, not a genre. Um, mm. There's so many different genres of anime and it's just a, a good way to say, oh no, I can deal with reading subtitles. It's not that much of a pain when you get down to it. Yeah, that's and, actually, that's a good point. Ghost in the Shell as a, like it's, it's got some big ideas, but as a film, it's it's got a familiar structure and it's sort of an action, you know, a futuristic action thriller. Like it's the kind of it's the kind of film you can watch, and then once you've seen it, you're like, well, now I see what the appeal of the medium is, in that it can do high budget things that work without requiring insanely huge budgets, hmm. and then that that kind of leads you on to if this cartoon can be for an adult. What about this cartoon? Yeah, because if if you think about the scale of that film, the the sets, the the visuals, and such, it would have been literally impossible to do anything with such a big scale um, for a, that budget at that time. Like you just couldn't do it. It's the big city shots, just um, the the robot being formed and, and and such, it would be impossible to do. So yeah, the the medium does allow uh, writers to kind of expands the horizons of what they're actually showing on screen to, uh, into areas which they couldn't do otherwise. Okay, so you, so what you're basically saying is that Ghost in a Shell could act as a great a great doorway for anyone who enjoys this movie into lots of other anime on screen. And not yeah. particularly yeah. just anime that's like this, but just the, the wider yeah. landscape of... of like, it, it, certainly it's how I got into anime. Right. Like, I, you know, everyone had seen little bits like Ulysses or Cities of Gold or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I had an, I watched that relatively recently. <laughs> My anime has been up. strictly Ghibli, really, up, to, up until this point. Yeah, uh, so and, if, and if nothing else, it's interesting that you can... Like, Ghibli is basically sort of the Pixar Disney of Japan in that it's family-friendly, aimed at all ages. And Ghost in the Shell is something different to that mm. within the same medium yeah okay so if, if, if we're talking about there the film being a, a gateway into more anime we should we reach our recommendation section now where where ghost and <laughs> shell can act as a gateway into more comics now i don't know whether you're going to go down the route of western comics or manga or ghost in the shell specifically uh so guys hit me with your comic book recommendations Sure, yeah. yeah. Okay, so there's a manga, also an anime, but specifically in this case a manga called XL Saga. Um, it's uh, a much more comedic than uh, Ghost in the Shell. It's uh, it's about um, 
an evil organization trying to take over the world, but uh, they only have three staff members. So uh, <laughs> instead of taking over the world, they decide to start out small and take out, take over a single uh, part of a city. Um, and uh, yes, it's it's about their um, attempts to <laughs> to do that. And it does have a robot in it, uh, just to tie it in with Ghost in the Shell. Um, uh, I think James is also a pretty decent fan of it. Um, yeah, I would. The thing I would point out is that Excel Saga is kind of a parody of the sort of thing that Ghost in the Shell is. Like, yes. Uh, it's, there, there are also sort of Sentai elements in it as well, but basically, Excel Saga is kind of a, a parody of the action genre within within manga and anime. It's it's really good. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, uh, James. What have you got for me? I mean, I've got two. There are two ways this can this can go. Like, are you interested? Knowing that the graphic novel of Ghost in the Shell is pretty large, <laughs> are you interested in reading? Like, it kind of has to be bought at least and read as one entity. So, are you interested in doing that, or should I recommend you the first? Instalment of a similar but different series. I mean, I'm interested, but for for podcast purposes and actually doing it in a week's time on a on the podcast. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go with it's a similar genre in that it's a kind of cyberpunk action. Uh, it's by completely different creators. It's got almost no connection to Ghost in the Shell besides that. Uh, it's called Gantz, G-A-N-T-Z. Okay. Uh, it's published by Dark Horse, I think, in the West. I may be wrong. Cut that. If I am, I'll check. Uh, and essentially, it's about a team of people who are saved from the moment of death and tasked with winning their freedom by repelling an alien invasion using sort of futuristic weaponry. Wow. Uh, it's got a very high cast turnover, like big ideas, lots of craziness. Uh, I would say, if of all the the manga series I've ever read, I think it's probably the most ripe for Western adaptation because the high concept is fantastic. Uh, but I, you know, as a manga, it's also very accessible. Excellent. Okay. Uh, well, we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. And given that we've just been talking about an anime film which is being adapted to live action, I would like you two guys to pitch to me which live action film you think would be best suited to an anime adaptation. Okay, I mean, it's a, you know, this is, as we're saying, like, the the content of anime is so broad that basically any film could be done in, in an anime style. Hmm. So... The one I've gone for, I almost went for Pacific Rim just because I think it's the only way we'll ever see more Pacific Rim. <laughs> but yeah. my my pitch is for a Fight Club anime, which is about uh, the it's a sequel to Fight Club where the narrator goes around uh, different cities. Uh, it's kind of an anthology style anime series where he meets people who have other uh, identities. Like he has Tyler Durden, and about two thirds of the way through, they get in a fight, 
and uh, his Tyler Durden fights their Tyler Durden, and at the end of it, one of them is left standing. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, I think, you know, that, that plays to the uh, tropes of anime in... There's a big thing about having sort of anthology storytelling and also having gratuitous action in the sort of superhero tradition where there is a fight which is also a metaphor and then at the end everything's back to normal. Excellent. Ian, what do you reckon? What live action film would be suited to anime? Um, when I read that question, for some reason the first thing that popped into my head was Mad Max. <laughs> and um, the reason I say that is that um, like the very first few anime films, uh, Mad Max would be appropriately violent and ridiculous uh, you could do some stuff that you wouldn't actually be able to do in Mad Max, except that Fury Road has done somehow managed to uh, to do some of the more ridiculous things that were in my head. Um, yeah, George, but it's George also, Miller is sat there listening to this podcast. Hi, George. Uh, I know you're a big fan. Um, thinking, yes. Hello, you idiot, I can do anything that anime can do. Did you not watch my last movie? <laughs> but there's, there's also this anime genre called a harem anime, and it's about a kind of... Um, the main character, for inexplicable reasons, attracts uh, a harem of women who follow him around and beat him up. Um, and <laughs> an example of this is Love Hina, for the for the record. Um, and I think that that uh, Fury Road film, like he could be trying to save the the harem from you know uh, Morton Joe or something like that, and it could become a comedic uh, harem show in the middle of a ridiculously violent apoc- apocalyptic thing. And it, anime has like apocalyptic stuff, like Fist of the North Star as well. So it, I think it would uh, it would fit in there. So <laughs> it's worth pointing out, like the the harem show tradition is kind of evidence of anime's worst. Well, Maybe, yes, maybe it's, it's terrible. Yeah, it's probably fair to say it's not even just anime as a genre. It's like the kind of Japanese culture's attitude to women is at times incomprehensible from a Western feminist perspective. Yes. And I think harem shows are a definite example of how you'll just watch it and be like, I have no idea how this made it this? To, to TV. And yet there are thousands of them. Yeah, why are all the shows this exact story? Yeah, they're and about like how a whiny, like idiot, has hundreds of women who are inexplicably attracted to him. <laughs> yeah, but wait, they also uh... but they also beat him up. Oh yeah, but in yes. an affectionate way. Oh okay. Could you? It, I mean, in 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 your version, is it going to be that that kind of crap version? Ian, I mean, I need to know whether it's going to be good or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think um... if they keep keep the Mad Max in a coma. It could be a subversive harem anime where, like, they need his like blood for something, or yeah, like it, it's yeah. A, it's about the women, but he's just there in a coma. Or could they? Yeah, could, they uh, could they change it where like the 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 men are following Furiosa around, <laughs> but but flip it so she still beats them up. Yes, absolutely, they could do that. Just thinking how you can get that character in an anime, and then George Miller yeah. can readapt it for Mad Max Five. All right, screw all those other ideas. Make a furious anime. That would be <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ian wins the pitch this week. Oh, God damn it! Excellent work. We really, we really developed that well together. I feel uh, <laughs> I didn't deserve that at all. I shouldn't have helped. Shouldn't have helped. <laughs> Basically, this normally <laughs> this the winner of this pitch is increasingly the one who I go, "Oh, I like that idea. Can I add this thing to it?" <laughs> is it the last one usually? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll go second next time. Yeah. <laughs> 
See if that works. Um, okay, um, so so Ian wins the pitch this week. Ian, um, would you like to let our listeners know where they can find you online? Uh, yeah, I'm Creeman on Twitter. Um, that's pretty much the only place you'll be able to find me at the moment, um, unfortunately. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, uh, if you dig up my distant past, you'll find various aborted blogs where I reviewed anime. So <laughs> start a new one. You've got this huge cinematic universe audience to build on now. Yeah. Okay, well, that is it for this week's show. If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, and send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. You can find previous episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com, and because this is a Film Divider podcast on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. To Homo Neanderthalensis, his mutant cousin, Homo sapiens, was an aberration. Peaceful cohabitation, if it ever existed, was short-lived. Records show, without exception, that the arrival of the mutated human species in any region was followed by the immediate extinction of their less-evolved kin. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with X-Men First Class.